I mentioned last time that when people find out that I have a PhD in philosophy, a brief moment of confusion sets in, since not many understand uh, the nature of the subject. And typically, once I provide a brief description of philosophy, there's a question that inevitably follows, and it's that quintessential American question. What are you going to do with it? What's it for? Now, look, I totally get the question. After all, people go to college uh, to get a degree for the purpose of getting a job and securing a career. People seek to be formally educated as a means to some practical end. And, and this is no less true today for people going to college for a philosophy degree than it is for pursuing a degree in any other field. Yet from the perspective of classical philosophy or that philosophical tradition that dominated the Western world from let's say the time of classical Greece until just after the Protestant Reformation, from this perspective, to ask what practical end philosophy is for is to completely misunderstand the very spirit, the very nature of philosophy itself. If we're going to understand the purpose and goal of philosophy as it was originally conceived, the first thing that we need to understand is that one does not, or rather one should not, pursue philosophy as a means to the securing of some practical payoff. Philosophy is not a means to some pragmatic end. It's an end in itself. At least for the classical philosopher, to philosophize was to seek the truth for the sake of the truth, to pursue the good for the sake of the good. One does not do philosophy in order to do something else. One does philosophy for the love of wisdom. As I said in the previous episode, many contemporary philosophers uh, do not find the literal meaning of the term philosophy, which literally means the love of wisdom, to be very enlightening or helpful when understanding the nature of the subject. Most philosophy textbooks ignore this original meaning and instead define philosophy by more or less looking around and observing what philosophers are up to today. But to the mind of the classical philosopher, you can't possibly pursue philosophy if you don't know what it means to pursue wisdom. So to get at the nature of philosophy as it was originally intended, we have to go back to see how it was defined and explained by the guys who kicked off the philosophical project in the beginning. And when it comes to defining and unpacking the meaning of philosophy for the classical period, there is no better source than the man who was unquestionably the greatest of the Greek philosophers, and in my opinion, probably the greatest philosopher who has ever lived. And of course, we're talking about Aristotle. Aristotle begins his book that was later given the title Metaphysics with a line that has become famous. He writes, quote, all men by nature desire to know. Now notice that Aristotle says that all men by nature desire to know. There's something about the fundamental nature or essence of the human being that drives the human towards the acquisition of knowledge. For Aristotle, this is evidence that human beings, in distinction from the rest of the animal kingdom, are essentially rational or intellectual beings. 
We are beings endowed with an intellectual nature, which is why Aristotle defines uh, the human as a rational animal. Now, the fact that we have an intellectual nature means that what is ultimately good for us as the kind of beings that we are is going to have to be understood in terms of what is the good of the intellect as such. In other words, if we want to know what our purpose is as rational or intellectual beings, if we want to know what we are for, we need to know the purpose of the intellect and what it is for. Now, Aristotle thinks that the intellect is designed and exists for one thing, truth. The end, the purpose, the goal of the intellect is to know the truth. And the proper operation of a human, insofar as he is rational, therefore, is to understand. And this is what distinguishes humankind from the rest of the animal kingdom. Now, because Aristotle thinks that nature does nothing in vain, he reasons that since we are by nature intellectual beings, and since the good of the intellect is to know the true, it follows from this that there must be some activity, or as he calls it, some science, some body of knowledge that represents the highest good for human beings as intellectual creatures. A science which is an end in itself, something worthy of pursuit simply because it's a good for us to pursue, given the kind of beings that we are. It shouldn't be surprising to learn that Aristotle identifies that science as philosophy. Since we are rational animals, since we have an intellectual soul, the highest and best activity that we can engage in will be an intellectual activity in general, and a philosophical activity in particular. And since philosophical, philosophical activity is the highest and greatest good for us, it should be something that's pursued for its own sake and not for the sake of anything else. So the first thing Aristotle says about the nature of philosophy is that it is something that is pursued as an end in itself. It is not pursued as a means to some other end. To see this more clearly, consider the distinction that Aristotle makes between what he calls theoretical knowledge on the one hand and practical knowledge on the other. Practical knowledge is knowledge that is sought for the doing or the performing of some action or for the achieving of some good that is distinct from the knowledge itself. For example, one learns a language for the purpose of communication. One learns the art of shipbuilding for the purpose of building ships. One learns ethics for the purpose of becoming a better human being, and so on. And practical knowledge is for the sake of something else. The end of practical knowledge is some action. Theoretical knowledge is knowledge that is sought for itself. It's knowledge, the attainment of which is willed for its own sake and not for the sake of anything else. Whereas the end of practical knowledge is some action, the end of theoretical knowledge is truth. Philosophy then is theoretical because it's sought for itself and not for any utility or usefulness. The philosopher seeks the truth of things simply because it is the truth. In his commentary on the metaphysics, Aquinas summarizes the thinking of Aristotle here when he writes, quote, theoretical knowledge differs from practical knowledge by its end. For the end of theoretical knowledge is truth, because it has knowledge of the truth as its objective. But the end of practical knowledge is action, because even though practical men, men of action, attempt to understand the truth as it belongs to certain things, they do not seek this as an ultimate end. 
for they do not consider the cause of truth in and for itself as an end, but in relation to action, either by applying it to some definite individual or to some definite time, end quote. So according to Aristotle, philosophy is an intellectual activity that is theoretical in nature, since it seeks the truth for the sake of the truth. And it's the highest activity that a human being can possibly be engaged in as a rational animal. But what exactly does philosophy have to do with wisdom? Well, if you look around at what goes for philosophy today at the academic level, it doesn't seem to have much to do at all with wisdom. Wisdom is something that is almost never discussed or addressed by contemporary philosophers. But for Aristotle and many of the classical philosophers who came before him and after him, philosophy and wisdom were not just related, but they were rather considered to be the same thing. Aquinas explains how the two terms came to be synonymous. He writes, quote, while the science was first designated by the name wisdom, this was later changed to the name philosophy, since they mean the same thing. For while the ancients who pursued the study of wisdom were called sophists or wise men, Pythagoras, when asked what he professed himself to be, refused to call himself a wise man as his predecessors had done, because he thought that this was presumptuous, but called himself a philosopher, a lover of wisdom. And from that time, the name wise man was changed to philosopher and wisdom to philosophy, end quote. Aquinas tells us that originally the philosopher was just called a wise man or a sophist in Greek. And that is until uh, Pythagoras, uncomfortable with the idea that he was wise or that he had attained wisdom, changed the designation from wise man to that of lover of wisdom. But what does it mean to be a lover of wisdom? Now, based on what I've said so far, I think we can begin to answer this question. To love wisdom is just to pursue it, to be drawn to it, to search it out. We can say that the philosopher is someone who's on a quest for wisdom. Now, to truly love wisdom uh, is to love it for its own sake and not for the sake of anything else. So a philosopher is someone who's on the quest for one thing and one thing alone, the truth. So what distinguishes the philosopher from other people, even from people who are extremely intelligent and well-informed, is that the philosopher does not seek knowledge for a practical end, but for a theoretical end. Whereas the shipbuilder seeks knowledge to build ships, or the cobbler seeks knowledge to make shoes, or the educator seeks knowledge to teach others, the philosopher seeks wisdom for one reason alone, to know the truth. Aquinas is again helpful here. He writes, quote, this name philosophy also contributes something to the point under discussion. For that man seems to be a lover of wisdom who seeks wisdom, not for some other reason, but for itself alone. For he who seeks one thing on account of something else has greater love for that on whose account he seeks than for that which he seeks end quote. All right, we're now beginning to conceptually encircle the classical notion of philosophy as the love of wisdom. Of course, there's one very important question that we need to confront now. What is wisdom? Aristotle explains that wisdom in a very broad and general sense is knowing the why or knowing the cause 
Or as Aristotle says, quote, wisdom is knowing about certain causes and principles, end quote. Wisdom pertains to understanding. Understanding is knowledge of things in a deep and penetrating way. To understand something is to fully know it. And to fully know something is to know the nature of something and the causes and the principles that account for its being the way that it is. The wise person then, the person who has this kind of understanding, doesn't just know a lot of facts or information. Uh, the wise person doesn't just know that things are a certain way. The wise person also knows why they are the way that they are, by appealing to nature's causes and principles. And from the perspective of the classical philosopher, we don't really know something until and unless we can see it in the light of its causes. So when we have uh, this kind of knowledge about causes and principles, when we have understanding, we have wisdom. However, to say that wisdom consists in the knowledge of causes and principles doesn't seem to be all that enlightening because it doesn't seem to distinguish uh, wisdom from other disciplines. After all, it seems that nearly every intellectual discipline is also engaged in the search for causes. Doesn't the doctor search for the cause of the symptoms? Doesn't the chemist search for the cause of the chemical reaction? Doesn't the historian search for the cause of some event? Doesn't the astronomer search for the cause of some cosmic phenomenon? Well, yeah, they do. And insofar as these disciplines are engaged in the search for causes, they are, to that extent, uh, pursuing a kind of wisdom. But it's not philosophical wisdom. Listen again to what Aristotle says when he writes, quote, Wisdom is knowledge about certain causes and principles, end quote. Philosophical wisdom is to be distinguished from these kind of routine searches for causal explanations by the kind of causes and principles that it's after. Aristotle explains, quote, all men suppose what is called wisdom to deal with the first causes and the principles of things, end quote. So philosophical wisdom is concerned with first causes and principles. But what does this mean? Well, we can think about first causes and principles as those that are most universal in that they apply to absolutely everything that exists or to all beings insofar as they are beings. Another way to say this is that the principles and causes that the philosopher is after are metaphysical in nature. First causes and principles refer to the foundational causes and principles of being. When we've reached a first cause or principle, we've reached metaphysical bedrock or a deep and universal kind of explanation. Metaphysical principles and causes are the most fundamental kind that there are in the universe of beings. They are deeper than any physical or scientific explanation can possibly be. And although they must be presupposed by modern science, they can neither be confirmed nor disconfirmed by the scientific method. To see the kinds of, of principles that Aristotle has in mind here, let's consider the phenomenon of change. Everything around us is undergoing change. Um, this is something experience teaches us. Uh, change is, when you think about it, really undeniable. Now, it's possible to inquire into the source and explanation of change at different levels. For example, we can consider change 
as locomotion in biology, as molecular interaction in chemistry, or as the relations among fundamental particles in physics. And as I've said, since all of these sciences seek causes and principles of change, they are all, in some sense, kinds of wisdom. But the philosopher is after something deeper and something more universal than these various physical explanations can provide. The philosopher doesn't just want to know how this or that physical system or this or that physical substance changes over time. The philosopher, want, the philosopher wants to know the fundamental principles of any change as such. The philosopher wants to know the principles that make any kind of change possible. The principles that underlie and ground the physical changes of which we are familiar and, and which are studied by science. In other words, the philosopher is asking a question like this. What is the nature of change as such? So the philosopher is not searching for the cause of this or that instance of change, but rather for the fundamental nature of change itself. And to answer this question, the philosopher is going to have to look deeper than any physical explanation can provide, since every physical change will presuppose the principles that make change possible in the first place. So in order to explain the nature of change itself, we're going to have to ultimately appeal to metaphysical principles. Aristotle identifies two principles of being that must exist to account for change, and he calls these act and potency. He reasons that in addition to the actual being or the actuality of a thing, there is also the way that the thing can be but is not, or what Aristotle calls potential being or just potency. Now, as an example of this, consider this billiards ball. Like everything else, it has actual and potential being. In addition to the way it is right now, it's actual being. There are also ways that it can be, it's potential being. It can, for example, be tossed into the air. It can change position. It can be crushed into tiny pieces. It can take on a different color. I could paint it. So in addition to the way it is right now, there are ways that it could be given the kind of thing that it is. Now, there are also ways that it could not be given the kind of thing that it is. For example, this ball is solid and therefore has no potency for being transparent, for being able to see through it, or for weighing as light as a feather. It's also not a living thing. So although I can roll this ball across the table, it cannot roll itself across the table. So for every being, there is an intrinsic or built-in way that the being is, or actual being as well as an intrinsic or built-in way that the being could be, given the kind of thing that it is, its potential being. And again, Aristotle posits these principles of being as necessary to account for change. Change occurs when the potential way of being in a thing is made actual or actualized. Or to put it more formally, change is the actualization of a potency. Now, notice what Aristotle has done here. He's provided a deep and universal explanation of change by appealing to first principles of being. That is, he's provided a philosophical or metaphysical explanation of change that applies to all beings of any kind, whether those beings be physical or immaterial.
So to love, to seek, to pursue wisdom in the philosophical sense is to inquire after the fundamental nature and principles of being. It is to seek an explanation that appeals to first causes and first principles. Now, because wisdom is a knowledge of first or most fundamental causes and principles of being, Aristotle calls it the science of first philosophy. First philosophy is first in the sense that it's in pursuit of the most basic and foundational causes and principles of being. It's also called first in the sense that it's after the ultimate or the highest causes and principles of being. The philosopher, according to Aristotle, is after nothing less than the highest possible cause and the highest possible truth, a supreme truth from which all other truth is derived, an eternal truth. Aristotle writes, quote, that which causes derivative truths to be true is most true. The principles of eternal things must be always most true, for they are not merely sometimes true, nor is there any cause of their being, but they themselves are the cause of the being of other things. So that as each thing is in respect of being, so is it in respect of truth." End quote. Philosophical wisdom then is not just knowledge of metaphysical principles, but knowledge of the ultimate principles. It's not just knowledge of causes, but knowledge of first causes. It's not just knowledge of the truth, but knowledge of eternal truth. Another way to say this is that the philosopher, the lover of wisdom, doesn't just want to know beings, but being itself. Doesn't just want to know truths, but the truth itself. And doesn't just want to know goodness, but the good itself. Now, you may be thinking to yourself that talk of eternal truths and uncaused causes, uh, talk of the true, of the good, this all sounds a lot like theology rather than philosophy as we're used to it. Well, you wouldn't be wrong. In fact, Aristotle has another name for this kind of philosophical wisdom. In addition to calling it first philosophy, he also refers to it as the divine science. Like many classical philosophers, Aristotle believed that when you've reached the first cause and ultimate principle, you've reached the divine. And for an example of the way this works out for Aristotle, consider again his conclusion regarding the nature of change, that change is fundamentally the actualization of a potency. Once we've reached these basic metaphysical principles in our account of the nature of change, we've arrived at the first principles of being. However, it seems that there's still a why question that can be asked here. And so we haven't yet fully accounted for change. Our inquiry is not yet at an end. We can still ask, how is it that change exists in the first place? Now, Aristotle raises this question, and he reasons something like this. Given that change is the actualization of potency, and given that, on the one hand, only that which is an act can actualize a potency. And on the other hand, nothing can be in a state of actuality and potency at the same time and in the same sense, and therefore nothing can actualize itself. It follows from this that whatever is moved from a state of potency to a state of actuality must be moved by another. All movement or change requires a mover or a changer. 
And moreover, since movers and changers are themselves moving and changing, they too are going from a state of potentiality to one of actuality, and therefore must themselves be moved by something else. For example, consider a stone that is being moved by a stick that is being moved by hand. The potential of the stone to be moved is being actualized by the movement of the stick, while the movement of the stick is being actualized by the movement of the hand, while the movement of the hand is being actualized by the movement of the man. For the stone to move here and now, the potentiality of each of the movers to move must also be actualized here and now. From this, Aristotle will go on to argue that in order to account for any movement or any change at any moment whatsoever, and to do so in a way that avoids the specter of an infinite regress, one's going to have to uh, ultimately appeal to a final source of change, a final source of movement or actuality that does not require itself to be changed, moved, or actualized. One's going to be led inevitably to an unchanged changer, an unmoved mover, an uncaused cause, or better, a being of pure actuality. Now, since this being will be purely actual, it will lack any potentiality whatsoever, and therefore will be absolutely unchangeable or immutable. And because time is the measure of change, this being will also exist outside of time. It will be atemporal, it will be eternal. Moreover, because this being will be pure act without any potency, it will always be fully and completely what it is. In other words, it will be perfect. And since goodness is just being insofar as it is desirable, a being who is pure and unlimited, pure and unlimited act will be pure and unlimited being, and therefore the most desirable thing possible it will be good to the maximal degree. So the philosopher who's after first causes and principles will ultimately be led to a being who is immutable, eternal, perfect, and good. First philosophy is thus a divine science because as Aristotle says, quote, God is thought to be among the causes of all things and to be a first principle, end quote. Now, this, of course, means that to be a lover of wisdom, to be a philosopher, just is to be a lover of that which is divine. I think we're now in a better position to understand the notion of philosophy as a theoretical rather than a practical science. To love wisdom is to pursue the highest truth and the highest good for the sake of itself. And because the philosopher pursues the highest good, it cannot possibly be sought as a means to some other good, because this would imply that there was some other good greater than it, a good to which the highest possible good would be subordinated, which is, of course, impossible. Aquinas writes, quote, with respect to what is truly good, there is a highest cause, the highest good, which is the ultimate end, and through the cognition of which a man is called truly wise, end quote. And this brings us to the final characteristic of philosophical wisdom. Wisdom includes knowledge of the order of things. To be wise is not just to possess an understanding of the first causes and universal principles. 
It also includes a proper judgment of things in their relation to the highest principles and the highest causes. Or as Aquinas says, again, referring to Aristotle's position, quote, it belongs to wisdom to consider the highest cause by reference to which one judges with certainty about other things and in accord with which all things have to be ordered, end quote. For Aristotle and Aquinas, once we've reached the highest, the first, the most universal cause, we have reached the final cause. We have reached that for the sake of which everything else exists. And because philosophy deals with the final cause, every other science, every other intellectual pursuit must be ultimately subordinated and ordered by it. Again, Aquinas explains what Aristotle means here. He says, quote, this science, philosophy, must consider the highest and universal end of all things. And in this way, all the other sciences are subordinated to it as an end. Hence, only this science exists in the highest degree for itself, end quote. And it's not just the sciences that need to be ordered to philosophical wisdom. All beings, especially human beings, must be ordered to it as well. For this reason, first philosophy or the divine science, although a theoretical science, is also eminently practical for human life. From the perspective of classical philosophy, you cannot truly know the nature of human beings, who we are, our place in the world, what is ultimately good for us, our purpose, our end, unless you know it in its relation to the first cause, the universal principle, the highest good, the eternal truth. Once more, Aquinas says this, quote, to consider something in itself is prior to comparing it to something else. Hence, the contemplation of divine things, the vision of the principle, belongs to wisdom first of all. And after that, what belongs to it is to direct human acts by reference to divine reasons, end quote. So the last thing that we can say about philosophical wisdom as conceived of by the classical philosophical tradition is that it is, at the end of the day, not just a theoretical discipline, but a way of life. Philosophy as it was originally developed and as it was largely practiced for the first 2000 plus years of its history in the Western world, was the love, was the pursuit of wisdom. And wisdom, as we've seen, is understanding, understanding the first causes and principles of being, and understanding the highest causes and the highest principles that ground all being. And although philosophical wisdom is loved and pursued for its own sake, since the highest truth it knows is also the highest good, it has enormous practical implications for human life, since everything else in life is understood in light of it and is ordered to it. The wise man, then, the philosopher, will understand the deep nature of reality in which he lives, will understand it as being grounded in the first cause and universal principle, will seek it for its own sake, and will order his life according to it. I want to add this postscript to this episode for any of you who might be investigating um, modern philosophy or contemporary philosophy for yourselves right now. Perhaps you've been reading some modern philosophers and uh, what you've been reading just seems completely foreign to what you've heard in this episode. 
Well, when I began my own study in philosophy, I started the classical period with the Greeks. I was enthralled by them, and especially by the writings and ideas of Plato and Aristotle in particular. And by the time I had progressed from the Greeks and into the classical Christian period of philosophy, I was hooked. I was absolutely addicted. The questions that these thinkers were dealing with were the deepest, the most profound, the most fascinating that could possibly be asked. They were seeking to know the nature of fundamental reality, the order of things, the, the nature of human beings in the place that human beings held in the grand order of things. They believed that there was a unity and purpose in the world, and so they sought for the one over the many. They sought for sameness and difference. They were looking for permanence and change. Classical philosophers were after nothing less than the true, the good, the beautiful. And then I began reading contemporary analytic philosophy, and what I encountered there was something altogether different. It was as if somebody stuck a syringe into philosophy and sucked out all the joy, all the profundity, all the significance from it. Contemporary philosophers, and here I'm thinking about those in the analytic tradition from about the turn of the 20th century to the present. These guys just didn't seem to be interested in the kinds of ultimate questions that were pursued by the classical philosophers. For much of the 20th century, it was widely believed that the task of understanding the nature of reality was to be carried out by the scientist and not the philosopher. So instead of asking the grand metaphysical questions, philosophers turned their attention to strictly empirical projects, such as formal logic and linguistic analysis. In fact, the dominant philosophical view until about the 1960s was that much of what passed for classical philosophy in an earlier age was meaningless at worst, or just a confusion that was caused by the misuse of language at best. And even when contemporary analytic philosophy broke free from these more restrictive and, and neutered views of philosophy in the late 20th century, most philosophers remained highly skeptical of any project which sought anything like the ultimate nature and order of reality or the nature and place of mankind within that order. And whereas classical philosophy was unified in the pursuit of the good and the true, philosophy today has no apparent unity whatsoever and is instead fractured into a, a multitude of highly specialized areas of inquiry. Philosophy today is just a mess. It has no clear identity or purpose. It's highly specialized and fractured. It's overly skeptical and critical. It's heavy on analysis and it's light on synthesis. It's largely anti-historical and anti-metaphysical. It has a very little to say about the nature of the good for human beings or our place in the grand order of things. In deep contrast to the philosophical enterprise of the classical period, there doesn't seem to be any unity, any purpose, any shared goal among philosophers today. And this is largely because very few contemporary philosophers believe that there is a unity to be discovered, uh, that there is something of an objective purpose to pursue. And many perhaps most today believe that the classical philosophers 
uh, what they were after, what they called wisdom, is just not something that can possibly be attained. So what has happened to philosophy? Well, tragically, I think that philosophy today has, for the most part, fallen out of love with wisdom. 